0: From WBZ News Radio in Boston, this is New England Weekend. Each week we come together, talk about all the topics important to you and the place where you live. As always, thanks again for tuning in. I'm Nicole Davis. First off, this time around, we'll talk a bit about ransomware. It's been all over the headlines lately attacks on schools and companies and hospitals, so on and so forth. This week we've got Stephanie Helmon, she's with the Mass Cyber Center and we'll do a bit of ransomware 101 with her. Learn what it is, how it works and how you can protect yourself from attacks like this. After that, we'll go up to the coast of Maine to Kennebunkport. Todd Glickman is one of the many volunteers at the Seashore Trolley Museum right off Route 1. They've got hundreds of acres where you and the family can walk around and get right up close and personal with transit history. It's actually pretty cool. So Todd will give us a lot of information about the museum's fascinating history and we'll also talk to about what they have to offer if you decide to make a visit. Cyber attacks in themselves are absolutely nothing new. They've been going on for decades. And the concept of a ransomware attack isn't new either, but it seems like every day over the past few months, they've been in the headlines, getting attacked on national and international levels, even locally. We've heard of a few around here. So with all of this happening, I wanted to bring in somebody to talk to us about what exactly it is. If we're not familiar with ransomware, how it's different from your typical cyber attack, let's find out. We have the expert with us right now, Stephanie Helm from the Mass Cyber Center. Stephanie, thank you so much for taking the time with us. I wanted to start with you by kind of breaking down the basics. What is ransomware?
1: Well, ransomware is a somewhat sophisticated attack against your system. Um, It is somebody getting inside of your system and encrypting it so that you cannot access Uh, you you can touch your keyboard and nothing will happen because they've locked it up essentially. Mm. Um, But the ransomware really is the word ransom, right? There is a criminal at the other end of this attack who is trying to extort money from you in order for you to um, get your system unlocked. So it really is a, a mesh of technology Which prevents you from using your system, and a human being who is a criminal um, who is trying to get money from you in order to um, unlock your system. There is also an additional wrinkle with many of the current ransomware attacks. And that is when the um, bad guys get into your system before they push the the magic key to encrypt your system, Mm. they are sometimes able to. Um, exfiltrate or take out personal information or financial information or something without you knowing about it. Mm. Sometimes the first you know is when suddenly your system is locked. So that's kind of a, a, a two-step. If you don't pay to get your system unlocked and you say, I don't, I don't need to worry about it um, because I have backups or I've got some way to um, get you out of my system, The next thing the ransomware criminal will say is, "Okay, well, I before I locked up your system, I took some information and I'm going to sell it on the dark web unless you pay me. So there's two kind two steps to this ransom, if in some cases.
0: Yikes. I mean, I think a lot of people believe, well, my computer's got a good antivirus, so that's going to protect me. I should be fine. But it seems to me and I could be wrong here. That can only do so much.
1: I think you're exactly right, Nicole. It it is a. An important step to have antivirus, because it can weed out um, some of the more common threats that come into systems. Um, <clears throat> but some of these uh, uh, these uh, attackers are very sophisticated in how they get into your system. Um, and and the probably the most basic thing is the is the phishing attack or, or the phishing scheme. I think people have heard about that P-H I S H I N G phishing. phishing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well let's
0: talk a bit more then about how this can happen to you and how this can get on your computer because I think there's a really big question here. Like, okay, well, how do these hackers get into my system and take it over without me even knowing it?
1: There are a number of ways they can they can get into your system and they can um, get around uh, your antivirus or your spam filters or um, even even some of the firewall settings. But the most common way that we've heard about recently is the phishing attack. And, and that is when an email comes into your inbox and it looks to be legitimate. And that means that it has, it's gotten through all the spam filters and everything. Um, it ends up in your inbox. And for some reason, it encourages you to click on a link and what that link does is activate um, the malware coming into your system. So that way it bypasses all those spam filters and the firewall and everything because mm-hmm. it's going directly back into uh, a location where the, where the hacker has put their malware. So that is why phishing is such a um, um, common warning for employees because um, you can be just doing your normal business, and an email comes into your queue, and you're not really looking closely at who this email is from, or you're not really um, noticing that they're asking you to do something just a little out of the normal, and you click on that link, then that's when it can start, that malware can start entering into your system. Mm,
0: these phishing emails, you know, they're getting more and more sophisticated Sometimes I've got a few in my own work email box, and it can sometimes at first glance be really hard to tell what's legit and what's not.
1: Yeah, in many cases, uh, what the hackers will do is they'll um, they'll take a like a web domain that is very similar to a name that you might know, you know, and I don't want to use anybody's you know business right, right. name, but but it's very similar and it's only off by one letter. So, when it comes into your email, you quickly scan it and you go, Oh, that's from company B. I do business with them all the time. And then it says, Here's the invoice we promised you. Just click on the link and we'll, you know, get you will have your copy or something like that. Well, if you didn't notice that that was not really company B, it was somebody else, then you've just activated that malware. Oh, boy.
0: And then people, I think, say, look, I can understand them going after bigger companies, the government. There's money there. There's prestige there. There's yeah, lots of stuff to take from them. But, you know, then somebody might get attacked and say, well, wait, why me? Why are they tracking me down?
1: Well, that's that's a true statement. Why me? Um, I, I think in some cases it's not personal. Uh, so <laughs> they <hope> are <laughs> they, they are using technology in some cases, to uh, just find, get, find a way to get into a system that has a vulnerability. And, and that can happen sometimes without phishing where they have the little bots go through in the internet and they can detect that there's a vulnerability that wasn't patched and there's a way in and they know how to get in. And then, the, and then the hacker, the human being takes over from there. In other cases, it is the phishing email where they just spam it out to a whole long list of mailing Uh, emails, and whoever clicks on it is the unlucky person that's activated the malware, and they're first at the head of the line there. Mm -hmm. Um, So it isn't necessarily um, always going after the big money. In some cases, because they have figured out the process, um, they're able to hit a lot of smaller entities that may not have robust resources to defend against it.
0: You know, you mentioned a couple of minutes ago that these people threaten to sell your personal email, your information on the dark web, expose your private files, share your deepest secrets, right? But how often do they actually do that?
1: I don't have a good working knowledge of of how far along they go. I my understanding is, it's a credible threat. Mm. Um, The business model that the hackers are trying to sell to you is that it is worth your money to pay the ransom. You know, like the good housekeeping seal of approval for bad guys. (laughs) We, We promise if you give us the money that we will unlock your system or we promise we won't sell that information. Right. But there, you know, honor among thieves, there's a whole lot of information you can find where people have paid the ransom. And then, you know, months later, that information did in fact get sold out on the on the dark web so there's no you know there's no no way you can go back and get your money back from those guys either no
0: no and honestly you know let's talk really quickly about that about the basics Hmm. of these ransoms say you get this ransomware on your computer and it's saying you need to pay us all this cryptocurrency or else we're going to sell all your stuff on the dark web Say somebody decides to pay the ransom. How does that all work? You can't just go to the bank and, you know, pop it into a bank account for the bad guy, right?
1: Well, most of these hackers are full-service criminals, so they'll tell you where to go get the cryptocurrency that they're asking for. Um, I, I, I would not ever recommend anybody pay the ransom, and I realize that's easy for me to say when I'm not the business or the hospital or the town that's been hacked. but Sure. Um, you're, only, you're only funding this criminal organization to go out and get better at it and do it again to more people. Um, I, I, I totally understand the, the dilemma people are in when, when it actually happens to them and trying to overcome it. So I would just say the hackers will walk you through it um, because they want to get their money and um, they'll make it as easy as possible for you to pay them. Hmm. Well, of course, we don't want that to happen.
0: We don't want you to pay mm-hmm. out these ransoms. So then say somebody who's listening, you know, a couple of weeks from now, whatever, finds themselves hacked. What should they do? What's the first step to take well, here?
1: Well, I I would say, you know, I would call law enforcement um, because there is a criminal act being Perpetuated against you, right, 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 right. So you know the i i would i would recommend you get law enforcement involved. Um, if you have cyber insurance, um, if you're a company, most most companies, most municipalities, they do have some sort of a cybersecurity insurance policy. Uh, those folks are um, in the business of helping you respond and recover, and they've got um, resources available. Through the insurance policy to help you kind of go through that, but I I think it's it's difficult when you're in that process to um, to know exactly what to do because it is um, it's life changing from what I've heard people how they've described it that it's just um, it, it's really traumatic to try to figure out how to recover and especially if you're a business that or a municipality where you have services to your citizens or you have, you know, patients with healthcare information, you you feel obligated to get back online as soon as possible. Um, So I would say one of the things that we recommend at the Mass Cyber Center is to prepare in advance. Okay. That's the best way to think through this problem before the trauma of the ransomware attack happens to you. Um, So that That I think is um, time well spent to think about what you would do if it happened to you, because I think it's more likely it will at some point um, if you're in, if you're a company or if you're a municipality or even healthcare organization.
0: Yeah, let's talk then about what people can do to protect themselves on not just their computers, you know, your phone, you're attached to the entire world on your phone these days, your tablet. It doesn't just take you logging onto your email on your work computer for somebody to attack you. It can really happen on any of your digital devices. So what kind of ideas and tips do you have?
1: Well, uh, one thing I would say is to... um, keep your operating systems patched. So frequently your phone will tell you, hey, we've got we've got an update we want to do for you. Um, I would say, say yes <laughs> <laughs> and get those updates downloaded onto your systems no matter what your devices are um, when they come to you. And that's usually because the company recognizes a vulnerability in the operating system and that patch is designed to stop the attack. So that for one thing would be um, something that I would recommend. Uh, Another thing is to make sure that you're, you have a strong password and that you change it occasionally and that you do not use the same password for multiple accounts. Mm. Uh, You know, I know it's a pain. You want to have a long password with multiple characters. And people say, that's just too much. Once I get a good one, I just want to use it everywhere. But the problem is, if the hackers are able to recover it once, and they figure out that's you, they're going to try that on every account that they can associate with you. So you should have a different password for every um, account that you have.
0: Okay, and there are special mm-hmm. apps out there. I know, like One Password, et cetera, et cetera, that can help you keep those passwords encrypted yep. and safe. Because I think people might worry. Well, if I put all these passwords in one place, what if somebody finds it? Right, then my whole digital life is open. But yep. there are safe ways to protect these.
1: Yeah, there, there are, and if there are companies that you even you know sell a service that have, you know, really, really super strong passwords and and easier ways of keeping track of them. So there are some free services, there are some you pay for. Um, but, but I would just say you, you should pay attention to your password and make sure that it is um, something that is unique uh, and something that is not shared with another account. So probably not
0: password one or ABC one, two, three. And I've heard that past phrases are actually um, coming more into fashion now, not just, you know, a bunch of letters and numbers and exclamation points. People typing out like, you know, lazy dog jumps over rock is, is more secure than your typical password. Is that so?
1: Um, The longer the password, the more difficult it will be for somebody to crack it. And so you're right, Nicole, um, many people are saying if you can think of three long words that go together, and you can easily remember that, then that goes on and on. And and if it's, you know, that would be um, better protection, perhaps than um, a short password with a lot of goofy characters in it.
0: Okay. Well, over at the Mass Cyber Center, you're always doing a lot of great work trying to get in front of all this uh, these upcoming threats. Uh, what's happening there right now? What are you working on these days? Uh,
1: well, one thing that we've um, got under our uh, resources tab on the website is a toolkit for municipalities. Um, we've established a minimum baseline for cybersecurity for, for municipalities, and it's essentially laying out four goal areas for um, cities and towns to think about their cybersecurity posture. So the first goal is employee training. So for a minimum baseline, the question is, do you have any employee training for cybersecurity? Yes or no? Mm. Um, If the answer is no, that's then a good place to start because as we talked earlier about phishing, all of your employees are going to be um, subjected to phishing attempts. So having your employees help you improve your cybersecurity is a, is a good thing. Uh, the next is threat sharing. Um, we think it's important for uh, municipalities to be a member of uh, the multi-state information sharing and analysis center, (MSISAC) um, because they um, have threat information that they send out to all the municipalities that are members of the organization. Um the third goal area is having an, an incident response plan. So if you don't have an incident response plan, um, there are tools on the website to help you think through how to build an incident response plan for your town. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at
0: the deli, I guess. Ah, in my dentist's office.
1: And then the final thing is um, thinking about your security environment and best practices, things like um, having backups and making sure you download those security patches when they come out, um, password management. Those things would, are all sort of best practices that we would recommend. All right. And how can
0: people get in touch with the Mass Cyber Center? How can they find out more about these resources that you have? Because right now we definitely need them.
1: So masscybercenter.org is, uh, is our website. Um, <clears throat> so you'll see information there about um, resiliency and some of the tips that we have there. Um, we also ha- have links into um, CISA, which is part of the Department of Homeland Security. Um, they've got a number of cybersecurity resources. So we've got links to them. Um, we've got the municipal toolkit with the minimum baseline of cybersecurity. Um, and additionally, we under the ecosystem tab, we've also got information about workforce development um, and cybersecurity jobs board, which has been recently launched. So um, we've got plenty of resources there um, that will support improving cybersecurity resiliency for the commonwealth.
0: All right. Well, Stephanie, this is great information, not just for businesses and municipalities, but those of us who just want to make sure that they don't steal all the cash out of our bank accounts. So thank (laughs) you for taking the time uh, and, and for all the work you're doing at the Cyber Center. We appreciate it. You're welcome to call. Thank you. I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like we take the modes of transportation we have to get around sort of for granted. All the cars and the subway trains and the trolleys and Uh, the electric buses we have, all of that, they all came from a very storied history that we don't necessarily hear a lot about. However, there's a group of volunteers over in southern Maine, right on the coast there in Kennebunkport, who are very passionate about preserving that history of electric transit. And you can go check it out in person for yourself. There's this great museum, and we're not talking about just walking into a building and taking a look at some exhibits and leaving. This could actually be an entire day where you go and roam these grounds, go up close and personal, check out these older buses and trolleys, learn a lot about how they work and take a ride on some yourself. One of those volunteers is Todd Glickman. And if you have any connection to New York, you might be wondering, wait, I know that name. That's because he's a meteorologist on WCBS radio, has been for quite some time. But he's also as much of a fan of transit as he is of weather. He's also my friend. I'm happy to have him on the show. Todd, it's great to be with you. Let's start with the history of the Seashore Trolley Museum. Tell us a bit about how it all came together.
2: Well, it it began in 1939 when a group of college students, then from Boston, heard that the Biddeford and Saco Railway, a streetcar trolley system in southern Maine, was going to be shutting down and replaced by diesel buses. And they said, we have to do something about that. We need to preserve one of the trolley cars because they were all going to be scrapped. And so they each put a couple of dollars in a bucket and negotiated with the Bitterford and Sacco to cart away one of these streetcars. Uh, it happens to be number 31 uh, from their fleet. And they moved it to a piece of property, which they rented in Kenny Bunkport, mm-hmm. and thus began the preservation movement of electric transportation. The museum is in the same place, the car is still on the property. And it still runs 120 something years later.
0: That's incredible. And it's not a small museum. I have been there, full disclosure. As mm-hmm. I'm kind of a transit nut, as you know. I've been there a couple of times. You have quite a bit of space for this museum.
2: It's 300 some odd acres, although a lot of it really isn't usable because it includes right of way from the end of where we currently have our property up into Biddeford. But the main campus is immense. We have about 250. Vehicles on the property, not all of which run. Some are tarped wonders, which means we wonder what's under the tarp. <laughs> uh, and about two miles of main line on our demonstration railway, where we take these cars out and teach people about the history of electric transportation.
0: That's the best part, I think. And we'll get to that in a couple of minutes. But I really want to learn more about how you source these trolleys. You know, where do you find these trolleys to bring to the museum and how do you get them there?
2: It, it's it's a uh, diverse Methodology, it starts with volunteers who are members of the museum that live all over the world. If they see something or hear about something that could become available, or they find a chicken coop in somebody's backyard or a system that's being decommissioned, uh, they'll talk to the museum. And if there's interest in it being, uh, becoming a part of the curated collection, an official part of the collection, negotiation will be made. There'll be oftentimes some payment or sometimes member donations. We'll take care of it. And sometimes they'll just be given to us, depending upon the condition. And they can come any number of ways. Probably the most uh, popular uh, is just putting the streetcar itself on the back of a tractor trailer truck. Hmm. Now, normally, it would say, well, that's too tall to fit under bridges on the interstates. And that's true. So the wheel sets, the, the steel wheels and the motors, which are underneath the body of the car, are taken off and just the body of the car fits nicely on the back of a tractor trailer and can be driven right to the property where the wheel sets and motors can be reattached. Hmm. Now, there are other ways to do it. They can be put on a flat car and run on a railroad and then trucked over. We do, of course, have the the route of the Downeaster, just about a mile from the museum, and a lot of other artifacts, such as some of the signal towers that we acquired half a century ago from the Boston subway system, the one at Northampton, uh, Tower C, which used to be right next to North Station,
0: right.
2: were put on barges and they were floated to the port at Kennebunk Port and then trucked over.
0: You are not kidding. You have to get pretty creative, I think, from time to time uh, to make sure everything gets there. And you don't also have just trolleys there. You've got buses, too.
2: The mission of the museum is to describe and educate about the history of electric transportation in the United States and around the world. But a piece of that history also includes diesel buses and electric trolley buses, much like we have in Boston that run in Cambridge to Huron and North Cambridge. Mm -hmm. And so it's an integral part of the history. And so while we do preserve and display those buses, it's a smaller part of the collection.
0: Well, I would certainly love to focus on what I think is my favorite part of the museum, which is the trolley ride, because you are one of the conductors. I've taken a ride with you. It was a really Mm -hmm. great time. Tell us about how you, I guess, train volunteers for this and how that all works.
2: So I am, in fact, an instructor. So I am one of the volunteers that teaches people how to operate the antique streetcars, interurbans, subway cars, and even drive the buses in a safe manner, which of course is number one, and number two, in a manner which will connect to our visitors. So it's it's a two part process. One is the physical training where we teach people what to do, how to run it, and how to do it safely, how to react to emergencies and so forth and so on. Mm -hmm. But perhaps the more interesting part is when we teach our volunteers how to interact with the visitors. And so if I may, let me give you a demonstration please Are you okay
0: yes of course okay
2: so let's say you're on the trolley car mm-hmm. you and your family and your friends have come out to the end of the line it's a beautiful day we're in the middle of the woods mm. i stop the car and i say to everybody think back to the year 1880 mm-hmm. that's 140 years ago mm. how did people get to work how did they get to school mm. how did they go to their play dates how did they go shopping And then I wait for some answers. And what would you answer, Nicole?
0: Uh, Walking, biking, Mm. horses. Uh
2: Aha, horses. Ah. Now, you can get on the back of a horse and gallop along, but most people didn't do that. What they did was they got on a horse-drawn wagon. Mm. And a horse-drawn wagon is essentially a wooden box with a horse in the front on these big wheels that go clumpity, 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 (laughs) clumpity down the rocked road. Right. And how fast do you think those horse drawn carriages could travel?
0: Uh, not that fast. Probably, what, five, ten miles an
2: hour tops? Maybe five. Because you go faster than that, it's really uncomfortable. Remember, there wasn't pavement back then. Sure. So the first innovation was somebody said, well, you know, we have steam trains that run in steel wheels, and they're fast, but they're noisy, and they are polluting. Mm-hmm. There was the invention or not invention, the discovery of electricity, and that it could be applied, this is the invention, to an electric motor mm. to drive axles. Right. So somebody said, what if we take that wooden box and put it on steel wheels and put it on the railroad tracks, disconnect the horses, let them go do what horses like to do, <laughs> they got stuff they like to do, mm-hmm. and use electricity to power that vehicle. Now, all of a sudden, how fast can you go?
0: Uh, certainly far faster than five miles an hour.
2: Maybe 20 or 25 miles an hour. Yeah. So here's the interesting point. Back in around 1880, when people could only go on horse-drawn carriages at five miles an hour, it meant that they worked near where they lived. Mm-hmm. Their visitors came from where near they lived. They shopped near the, where they lived. Their recreation was near where they lived. Because to do any of those things required a tremendous amount of time. But with the invention of the streetcar or trolley, which ran on tracks and could now go literally five or even ten times the speed, you could work here, live there, shop there, mm-hmm. go to school somewhere else, visit a friend somewhere else, go to the beach all in the same day. Wow. And what that did is it transformed the village where everybody did everything locally. To the big city, the big community where people could travel to do different things. Yeah. It did give way to a really bad word. And you as a former traffic reporter know this word, Mm. commuting. So all of a sudden you could live in Brookline and work in downtown Boston. Yeah. Or maybe travel out to Worcester to see your relatives. Hmm. Or perhaps go to southern New Hampshire and go to the beach in Portsmouth Harbor. A blessing and a
0: curse, I guess.
2: Exactly. So all of this could occur because of the invention and the discovery of the streetcar. And this all took place from roughly 1890 to 1910. In that two-decade period, here in the United States and literally around the world, streetcar systems blossomed like crazy. Because they literally changed the way people could live their lives. It was transformative. Mm. And companies made money doing this because every time you get on the trolley, you put a nickel in the slot. Sure. And there were networks of systems. And with higher speed cars, now all of a sudden you could go from Manhattan to New Haven to Boston at 50, 60, 70 miles an hour. And you could spend maybe $10 doing that on electric vehicles.
0: Was and so now.
2: the early part of the 1900s was very transformative in terms of how this process worked. What happened then as we moved into the, the next couple of decades was there was another invention. People wanted their own personal transportation and what could they now drive? A car. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so yes. you didn't have to go where the streetcar system went. And so the streets became clogged with the streetcars for mass transportation and automobiles for private transportation and people still using horses to get around to horse and horse drawn carriages. So it was Oof. really a mess in the cities, very congested, very polluted. Yeah. And the companies that produced automobiles said, well, maybe we can figure out a compromise, a hybrid. What if we had a gas or a diesel vehicle that could carry 50, 70 people, but not be, dedicated to the rails and could go where people wanted to go. Okay. And that led to the invention of the bus or Omnibus.
0: Okay, okay. So
2: here's where that transition starts to take place. And the automobile companies that built the buses said, oh, well, we got to sell more buses. So what they did was they bought up some of the trolley lines mm. and at the outer edges where fewer people wanted to ride, they said, well, we'll just put a bus there because it's more convenient. We can run on demand. Right. And so the trolley lines were shrunk and shrunk and trunk, and trunk, until World War II, when many of them disappeared, Right, and that goes back to the beginning of our discussion about the Bitterford and Sacco going away in 1939. Now, some cities did keep their trolley systems. Boston, in fact, is one of the lucky ones. The Green Line yep. is one of the historic trolley systems. Mm-hmm. Mattapan-Ashmont, which historic cars still run on. Mm-hmm. Philadelphia, uh, New Orleans, San Francisco kept their streetcar systems through the decades. And along the way, now as we move into the 70s and 80s, people said, well, you know, maybe because of sustainability, we should try and think about not having so many diesel buses. Maybe we could have modern streetcar lines in cities to do mass transportation, take care of a large percentage of the needs. And so being able to use modern technology what we now call light rail. Right. So you can go to Seattle, you can go to Houston or Dallas or Bayonne, New Jersey or Cleveland (laughs) or Boston and ride modern light rail vehicles. That's what has transformed the green line. And so this timeline that I've just described for the last few minutes from the horse and buggy to the wooden streetcar to buses, to modern light rail is that history of electric transportation to which the museum is dedicated to describe. Mm -hmm. And so what we do is we collect, we preserve, we restore, we operate, we demonstrate all of these vehicles to teach that history to our visiting public.
0: I really appreciate the volunteers like you who work there who are really passionate about this and preserving this history so all of us can learn from it.
2: It's it's been a lot of fun. I've been doing this since 1988. When I joined the museum, I started as an operator, became a dispatcher, now an instructor, Mm. Help out in the yard crew. I'm the the chief uh, bus driver instructor as well, since I still have my bus license. And we have room for volunteers in every part of the operation, restoration, woodworking, preservation, building the tracks, taking care of the buildings and grounds. You name it, if you've got a skill, your volunteer efforts are absolutely welcome.
0: All right. Well, let's get people there then. So the museum is in Maine, Kennebunkport, uh, right off Route 1. Uh, Tell us how to get there and how people can find out more about what you've got to offer and these opportunities.
2: It's the Seashore Trolley Museum in Kennebunkport, Maine. It's on Log Cabin Road. The website is trolleymuseum.org. It's all one word, trolleymuseum.org. This season, we are open Wednesdays through Sundays. So Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday and Sunday from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Admission is $12 for adults and discounts, of course, for seniors and kids and groups Mm -hmm. and so forth and so on. The ticket is good all day long. You can ride as much as you like, tour the property as much as you like. We also have memberships for, I think it's $35 or $40. You can join the museum. That allows you to come anytime you like and also to volunteer and become part of the the core of people that uh, enjoy doing what I've just described.
0: And you're dog-friendly, too, which I realized.
2: Dog-friendly, sure, absolutely. Bring your pet along, come on board, no extra charge for that, even some water on the side for the dogs on the platform. Uh, It is uh, ADA accessible for people who have uh, needs for uh, special help with mobility. We're delighted to assist as well.
0: Well, Todd Glickman from the Seashore Trolley Museum, this has been a great interview. Thanks so much for coming on, and hopefully I'll get to see you there sometime this summer. My pleasure. Look forward to seeing you. All right, that is the show for this week. Thanks again so much for tuning in, as always. If you want to catch up on past episodes, maybe sunbathing at the beach, wherever you choose to be, uh, find us on the iHeartRadio app, Spotify, any of your favorite streaming services. Stay cool out there this weekend. Stay safe and healthy. Please join me again next week for another edition of the show. I'm Nicole Davis from WBZ News Radio on iHeartRadio.
2: It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win?